0: For epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities, and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist, or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. Last week we spoke with Kristen Goddell, a Neuroscience PhD candidate at the University of Cincinnati, Ohio, who as well as studying epilepsy professionally, also has refractory epilepsy so she knows quite a bit more about the topic than many in the lab. Today we are talking to Dr. Colin Dunkley, both a consultant paediatrician specialising in epilepsy and the Epilepsy 12 Clinical Lead based at Sherwood Forest Hospitals in the UK. Colin trained in Leeds, then Nottinghamshire, had an epilepsy fellowship at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, and since 2005 has been a consultant. His focuses are the epilepsies and quality improvement. Hello Colin. Hello. Can you tell everybody about yourself please and what you do?
1: Yeah so I'm a paediatrician. I work in uh, Mansfield, Nottingham, just north of Nottingham Um, and I do maybe half of my time is about epilepsy related and then the other half is general general paediatrics and I do a bit of governance related work so I I look after um, some aspects of Pregnancy and um, uh, maternity and gynaecology, but that's not that's not much of my uh, job. It's mainly, mainly paediatrics, many children, mainly mainly epilepsy.
0: How old are these children that you look after?
1: From day day one up till adults, you know, nineteen. Usually, we're we'll, we're well on the way to getting them into an adult um, service, but it can be up to you know nineteen years.
0: How did you start focusing on the epilepsies more than other uh, neurological conditions?
1: curiosity I think yeah I mean it, it's hard to trace it back to the that moment yeah it was, I, it was it was when I was doing community pediatrics I think in in around here actually and um, I was I was struck by how little I knew about epilepsy I know it was it was, um, it was a strange problem to have to try and help families with and I felt quite overwhelmed by it and I and I thought it would be easy to sort out by reading a book and learning you know, in the standard way about epilepsy, but it was extraordinary how difficult it was to get my head around it. And um, that got me curious. And I, I loved the fact that um, a lot of the a lot of it was around um, discussion and conversation and 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 finding out and sort of an investigative detective type element to, to making the diagnosis and then the ongoing care of families was again trying to understand their epilepsy their views about seizures their perception of risk how it was affecting them so it was a it was very different from child to child so I liked I like sort of appealed to my curious side uh, I think and then I haven't been able to um let go of it it's sort of grown grown uh, since since then
0: there's such a complex like area isn't it and I, sometimes I feel like, when lots of other clinicians and scientists have told me that, it feels like we're just touching the surface. Like the human brain is so complex, and how it affects all other bits of our body, brain, health, all that type of thing.
1: Yeah, for sure. And you, when you're communicating with someone, you're literally talking to their. You know, you're talking to their brain. It's, their, it's the organ of interest that you're. Um, you're, you're speaking to and we yeah we only we we sort of pretend to understand it but we don't we don't we don't really we don't really we
0: don't really um, <laughs> do you know what? When, when people say that it's like this really reassuring like your um, modesty but also the openness I think to, it shows openness to what patients um, and families have, have got to say um and valuing that uh, sometimes it's a bit scary as well like oh but but you're a doc surely you know everything and no don't, i really really don't um and if, i think that can be hard to, for people to get their head around sometimes like you are this medical professional but wow you don't know everything i think that can be scary for some families maybe it,
1: yeah very much so and it needs trust you know i think you know if you're going to be honest and show that you're not sure and not completely certain and you're you know going to be on this journey with the the family that takes a lot of trust and you can easily um, you know you can easily oversimplify it or pretend you know all the answers and say this is definitely where we're at and definitely what's going to happen but you you sort of lose that trust if you go down that path so I I, yeah a lot of it to me is trying to impart confidence in the in the family but being honest about uncertainties and and what you what you do and don't know and and, then Stop, starting from
0: there, okay. Could you give us examples of your patients, please? So, like, I know that's probably like quite a hard question to answer. But like, what are uh, maybe extremes? Um, so you have like little babies, and then you have yeah. people yeah. eighteen, nineteen, um, varying degrees of of the severity of the epilepsies and comorbidities.
1: Yeah, so you can have a clinic where you're you're seeing a family with their little baby who's had some type of episodes in the first few days of life, or when they're on the neonatal unit, and um, what what is that telling you? And maybe the, the seizures are fine, but now you're thinking, what's their development like? Are they are they sitting? Are they are they smiling? Are they are they you know where where what's the impact? Is there something else going on? here? and then you can have a a slightly older child, and you're thinking, is this spasms, um, which is you know really important to um, to to find in these in these under ones and they they can mimic lots of other problems you know like, like reflux or um, funny shuddering episodes so so yeah you might have a slightly older child and then you might have a toddler running around and um, what sort of funny episodes are they having at night have they got autism what else what else is going on and then t- teenagers of course <laughs> which um, own challenges um, <laughs> there. <laughs> 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 so it's completely, completely different. But but increasingly over time, we've tried to pull the um, the teenage epilepsy people out of the standard clinics. And they they I've found they, they need such a different type of package and approach. We've we've tried to have epilepsy clinics and then teenage um, epilepsy clinics as a separate type of offer.
0: How does it work when you've got, so you've got these teenage epilepsy clinics, which sounds really cool, (laughs) but then how do you um, help them make that transition out of paediatrics to um, adult
1: um, care? Gradually, um, and starting early. So I think sometimes it's perceived as, you know, transition as handover, you do something at the end of paediatrics, but that always goes wrong. And, uh, you know, sometimes they can be left high and dry and, and they land in adults or, no, or don't land, but it's always a sort of shock to the system. So increasingly, we've been trying to think more about young people's epilepsy services beginning from maybe age 11, 12, beginning to um, get them to think independently, make decisions for themselves, understand their epilepsy, speak for themselves, um, maybe see us uh, on their own first, you know, and then do that gradually. Graduate, you know you can track it over time so that it, you know you don't suddenly say we're going to treat you as an adult now some some want to be and they come in and you can tell they they want they're behaving like an adult thinking like an adult and they're just ready to go and the parents can take a back seat but but they um, want to kick some, them out like i want to
0: do this on my own mate but yeah, like, yeah, there are certain sure. things but, that i want to tell my doctor i really don't want you hearing
1: yeah, <laughs> for sure yeah and then you have to be ready so you know um, you have to be able to it's really easy to keep treating them like a child if you're not careful or the system can perpetuate that so so sort of trying to see through that and see where they're at um, and allow them to get into because I think, I mean, my impression is that epilepsy really can stifle young people's journey towards and you know, there's nothing more you know, particularly the teenage onset epilepsies, you know, you're just finding your feet and, and trying to work out who you are in the world and how it works and act independently. And then suddenly you get this unpredictable, embarrassing condition. It's, um, it's really, it's the, I think it's one of the cruelest um, health problems for teenagers, for, for sure.
0: Do you know what, it's really cool that you said that because I was having a conversation with somebody Um, It was a few months ago now, but it really stuck with me. Um, And it was uh, with a person who developed epilepsy as a teenager, and they were telling me about basically what you just said—how challenging it was to kind of change your whole life and try and accept that maybe this condition will stay with you, maybe it will sod off in a bit. You don't know, but until you know, or then you just got to change everything. And yeah, it can be really embarrassing. It changes your social. Anyway, I was comparing that to my own situation where I was diagnosed when I was really little and I've been having you know seizures years prior to diagnosis so as horrid as it is and it was it's something that because I've grown up with it I've my and because my life has been at least partially molded by it it's not a shock for me when teenage years are so horrid anyway in many ways so challenging um, and so it's easier in a way for me to cope with it at that age than it is for them. And I hadn't really thought of it before until I was speaking with people who were diagnosed at a later age. And so it's really good that yourself and no doubt your colleagues recognise that, um, because I, I don't think it used to be recognised in the past.
1: You know, I, th- I find often it's, it's, you know, often there's talk about people with complex epilepsy, um, yeah. and clearly they have a bad, bad time. but even Everyone with epilepsy, even if the seizures have completely gone away, that 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 fear of having the next seizure can be really difficult for them. And then there's all the other stuff. So so increasingly Thanks. the fo- yeah and oh yeah the the mental health, their well-being, all the things that traditionally we don't talk about often are the main impactful things. So not not just the seizures, but trying to get the health system to hear that, see that, focus on that is is really challenging and it's been interesting with with covid we do you know see because normally i'd see people in clinic and it's a really sterile artificial constructed environment and it's it's made me realize how you don't really see people as they are so when we've, we've started to do more video clinics it's been in for some they don't like it but for others they feel so much more comfortable they're in their own home they're in their comfort zone they're 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 speaking to video which they they're used to doing and you see them in a completely different light so it's been interesting to um to see a different side to um to um, to people through through the pandemic so
0: i just like literally this morning did a talk with um for neurological alliance at royal college of psychiatry and um i was saying how for me lockdown has been i well I'm lucky that I don't don't have children to look after um, and stuff like that, but I've actually found it quite relaxing and I haven't had to travel to appointments, um, which can be really tiring and stressful. So I've been able to like sleep longer in in bed in the morning, which is really good as far as the epilepsy and the mental health comorbidities are concerned. Um, Have you found, had any feedback from um, patients and families regarding that, that has there been a positive aspect to that? remote appointments in that yeah,
1: way yeah yeah for the for for some of the for the families who love it they love it you know and so the young people before would you know some of them who wanted to come independently they're not driving so they had to come on right. transport and you know it'd be two or oh, they had day off college and so it was a massive impact and you don't see that if you're seeing them for half an hour in clinic you don't see how much of the, their day it's um uh removed so yeah, see them at see them at home. I've seen families in the front seats of their car. They the the parents go into the school, to get get the child out of the class. They sit in their front seats. They have a video. It's a bit like carpool karaoke, and you see. <laughs> but but it's but it's quite nice. The uh, there's there's a sort of equality there, and the you, you find the young person speaks for themselves, and the parent says they. So yeah, it's. Um, it's really, it's really nice. So, I don't want to lose all that.
0: So. I guess it's neutral territory as well. Yeah. Actually, actually, that is really good. So, you're just making me think of the couple karaoke with Bruno Mars and the one with Adele. Is it as good as those two? Because those were fabulous. <laughs> Watch yeah, out, you'll less, have patients there's... and families singing for you. That hasn't yeah, happened, there's, right?
1: less, there's less music. There's less music, to be sure. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> So, can I ask, how do you, you've told us a bit about this already, but how does it work? um helping patients and families um with their psychiatric comorbidities um you don't i think generally professionals like yourself don't have as much time as you would like with patients and families so how do you help them if you have a suspicion that they might not be well or if they've told you that they you know have depression anxiety what do, what do you do
1: to be honest with the current state of health service we we struggle you know the, the, the health service isn't equipped to properly support young people's mental health and well-being so you know over time my interest with epilepsy has grown into struggling to support people properly and thinking you know we, we how do we shake up how do we shake up the system i can i can do my best in clinic but the whole landscape for epilepsy um needs to change so my my audit improvement work has, has been trying to support um changes in the um in the landscape so that you can begin to to help um, families better than just what you can do on your own and interestingly that's over you know we've been doing that for over 10 years now and initially the focus was around seizures and medicines and die and avoiding misdiagnosis but now um, it's trying to think, how do we get mental health embedded into um, into our services? What what should that look like? Um, and we're not we're not there yet for sure. We can recognize it. You know, you, so I think, you know, you can hear, you know, to start off with, you can you can go looking for mental health problems and be ready to hear about it and show interest and and be curious and not just be distracted by seizures and medicines. So you can start off with that. But 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 then what you do to support the young person is really is really. Um, it's really tricky. Um, and there's some models um, coming up that are not, you know, so you hear about some services that are, are getting there with with getting uh, mental health provision uh, there in clinic or where the young p- person needs it. But but so often it's really difficult. And are you know, the, the the children's mental health services are overwhelmed and they're not they're so busy trying to support inpatient mental health care and kids with suicidal problems or other uh, more classic mental health problems the um, the young people with epilepsy find it hard to get get the support there and then and then when they do often the epilepsy is seen as um i don't know for what for whatever reason sometimes the epilepsy is used as a reason not to do what you tend to you know if you're treating some person who didn't have epilepsy for the same problem with a well with their well being mental health, they might get one package, but because of the epilepsy, they, they don't always get offered the same the same things because it this is question is oh well, maybe it's to do with the epilepsy, maybe it's the medicine, maybe um and um I, I think they get neglected in plain sight sometimes. Not not always, but I, I think that that's my impression. So yeah, we need to it needs to be really shaken up, mental health provision for people with epilepsy for sure.
0: I feel that personally and on behalf of many people that I know when we say that mental health issues and whether you're a child or or a supposed adult uh, you know there's no point um, in having controlled seizures if you are suicidal or if you're so anxious you can't leave the house because honestly well I think that just says it really Um, and also no, surely it needs to be recognized that Further investment and provision for the mental health of children affected by epilepsy and mental health comorbidities will save money, <laughs> like, not initially, but it will save the taxpayer money. Like for instance, if I'd have gotten help years ago with my mental health, I swear I would not need the help that I need today. And um, it's very short-sighted, do you not think?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there's loads of money to be saved. With you know, if you do epilepsy care good, you can save loads yes. of money. So it's it's really it's really it doesn't make sense sometimes to to that that things aren't aren't improved when you can make such a difference and save money at the same time. We in the audit work I'm involved with, we, we know we know that maybe about thirty percent of young people have some type of mental health problem diagnosis, but we found in our audit that diagnoses would be made in in less than 10 percent so it wasn't being seen um let alone supported so it's sort of that you know the system we're working in is still not recognizing um and finding finding the problems and so you so you you then find them later or they come to you in a more um advanced form um and the young we've um the you know our audit has changed its focus over time and that's been largely the the young people who've been involved <laughs> telling us loud and clear that we need to be looking at different things and the and the two things they've they've told us we need to focus on more is mental health and services being contactable you know this 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 ability to get help and support in between um appointments in between admissions um and and then have a focus that helps their their mental health and well-being you know they've that's they've, they, you know so we, we've we've tried to focus our um our improvement work increasingly on those those two things
0: what would be the procedure if a child um, wanted to speak to you without their parents present for whatever reason because often mental health issues involve families right and often especially at certain ages you just don't want to your parents to know certain things that you're experiencing um, gone through like they might want to mention to you that you know I think did I have a seizure in my sleep because I woke up and I'd wet myself or I've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend what if I have a seizure during sex I wouldn't want to say that in front of my parents like what what do you do in that situation
1: yeah or or your doctor so yeah so we I yeah well close, yeah uh, uh, in you know it's it's a vulnerable it makes you vulnerable doesn't it to have some of these honest conversations yeah so so in the clinic you can do something so you know so you can assume that the young person may want to have um, an independent um, consultation with you and offer that routinely within your teenage clinics do you want to see me uh, first you can you can um, and then and then try and run your clinic I do them together with um, Kirsten who's uh, epilepsy nurse so we do it as a a double act Um, and then usually it doesn't usually the young person has already spoken, you know, because they have a relationship with the specialist nurse and uh, using WhatsApp and text, and there's a sort of ongoing relationship between clinics that that conversation has already begun, um, um, and then you can that can be an expectancy that they can they can say you know safely talk about it. Um, so yeah, you you don't want to try and solve everything in in the clinic appointment. I don't think, but but you can do a lot to make the clinic appointments um, suitable for for that type of conversation. But you're never you're never going to create a clinic that properly supports young people with these these types of um, conversations. Yeah. So so increasingly, I think it's this: how do you support people in between their appointments? What does that relationship with the service look like? How does it have a human face? How does it feel safe? How can the young person independently speak to the team? and then digital you know the the attraction of some of the digital solutions is increasingly um we'll be able to use that um that space and we've we've, we're just testing at the moment something using the nhs app where um young people directly can begin to message the epilepsy service professionals they know directly we've only just got going so it's in the in the early stages but you know the the ability to confidentially and securely message um your team um, and then see your letters digitally and see care plans digitally and have that to be able to carry your your health around in your pocket and and, and put your seizure frequency into the same system um, that's that's where we're trying to trying to get to but it's it's early it's early doors for that but but it's something it's something to, about the contactability I think not just how you Create your yeah, your teenage clinics.
0: That's really cool. Like, I wish I had that growing up. That would have been so good. Although, I don't know, something that might have held me back is that I know that my parents have access to the records. So then it's
1: yeah, 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 yeah. So you need to create a confidential space, and then then how do you do that? So, so I think what and how one person wants to communicate is probably going to be different from another person. So you need a mixed a mixed um mixed model, I think. But it's not straight no is the
0: brain <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: but you got to do it you got you know this is what I think people with epilepsy like no other need this type of um, complex service
0: I'm, I'm just thinking of a chat I had with Rohit Shankar a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about a family who had a, a child with epilepsy intellectual disability is really challenging um, situation and they'd been um, saying to him that their child was having a certain type of seizure, um, which can be re- I'm invaluable for you, right? But they had said it, it was basically they were wrong. They said it was one type and it wasn't. And so that meant that Rohit could not provide the treatment that that person needed at least for, for that period of time until he actually knew that wow no they're not having that type of seizure they're having another. do you come across that sort of thing and if you do like how do you like address it?
1: getting the diagnosis right is really important so it's it's the so and it's not a single diagnosis there's so many different types right and it's it's in the story and um, yeah so hearing the story for yourself hearing what the seizures are really like getting a, a video if they've occurred in school you know you really you need to be hearing from the teacher rather than a second hand via the, the parent um, so yes yeah, so it's getting an accurate story and um, you'd have thought that's easy in this day and age but actually there's so much that muddies muddies it and the and the, often, sometimes people will tell you the story in the way you think they you know the way they think you want to hear it so they, they, they alter it the words and they, they tell you what you th- want to th- They think you want to hear so you have to unpick yeah pick that so that's why i like that sort of trying to get under the you know just get under the surface and see what's really going and it's really rewarding because you know when you the, the when when you get a clear description usually the seizure type uh, lights up and it becomes obvious um, and then you get more information and then over time you can work out what type of epilepsy it is and then what the best medicine is so um but it's never it's never in a single moment it's never really a light bulb moment it's a sort of a gradual a gradual awakening
0: and it's like a massive jigsaw isn't it because there are all yeah, these different yeah, bits yeah like yeah. And,
1: you, yeah and you get it wrong sometimes you know you think one thing and you but you've only had seen half the jigsaw and then then you get a video through and it's different than you're expecting or then you see another type of episode or the um, you see another type of video that was at night rather than day you know so the so it's a jigsaw where you're getting the pieces incrementally over time um, and 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 there's pieces missing you never get the whole you never get the whole jigsaw so yeah you're an investigator
0: really as well isn't it and you know like a private health investigator I was thinking how Um, What percentage would you say of your patients, and perhaps it would be split up again depending upon the type of epilepsy, but show no um, irregularities or abnormalities in their EEGs? Because like for instance, when I had my first EEG when I was little no, abnormality shown at all. I wasn't having a seizure at that time, and there was nothing funny going on in in the background in Tricht. So, and then I'd had another one another day. Um, showed nothing, and it wasn't until I was having video telemetry in hospital for the second time that I happened to have a seizure. Then, thank goodness, the only time you want a seizure, and then they could see the abnormal activity, um, but it wasn't. So, what do you do with um, with these people who show no?
1: abnormalities? Well, yeah, so it's maybe about half, half of the young people, you know, and you, and you, but we sort of know that. We know that the EEG isn't often going to give us the answer. If your question is, have I got epilepsy or not? Then, you know, the EEG is a really rubbish test. If if you think, yeah, I'm pretty sure from my story, the videos, this is epilepsy. Now I want to get into that in a bit more detail and know what type it is. Then, then the EEG, even if it's normal, is helpful. You know, it'll push you to saying, oh, I think this is a generalised. Epilepsy. I think this is a focal seizure. I think it's this type of focal seizure. So the EEG takes you further. Um, so you, so normally EEG is is fine. It doesn't throw you if if you're if you if you if you understand it in the right the right way. Um,
0: so it's not worthless if they don't have an EEG. Uh, sorry, have a seizure during the EEG.
1: Oh yeah, that's that's useful. But it's rare. I mean, most 20, 20 minute thirty minute EEG. You 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 catch everything but the seizure usually. Um, but it gives you it gives you clues and it tells you something um but you know i think that was the problem 15 20 years ago there was an over-reliance on eeg people didn't really understand the features of epilepsy so they thought every shaking episode was an epileptic seizure and then eegs can be abnormal in people without epilepsies and um so there was this culture i think of people getting misdiagnosed with epilepsy but we've moved on stacks stacks since then the, in our in our latest audit um, publication in july the rates of misdiagnosis have, have completely um, dropped we think um, wow, so compared that's so to when, good. Com- compared to when we started maybe 2010 we started the audit so over over the years uh, as far as we can tell um, the, the rates of misdiagnosis have really plummeted. And then that's what's made us sort of shift our focus now.
0: Yeah, no, it's so good. Because um, I was talking to a while back, um, uh, Sandor Binitsky, who was saying about 30% of people with the diagnosis of epilepsy don't have epilepsy. Was like, wow, imagine being doped up for your whole life with drugs or treatment that is not gonna control the seizures you do have because it's not epilepsy. That's just crazy
1: that still does happen but i think it's getting better so we we yeah. we think we think the sort of rates of misdiagnosis in more expert services are probably more approaching five percent whereas in oh, non-expert cool. service is around 30 percent. so yeah so if you can get your service to have expertise and be well resourced i think you can get your your misdiagnosis rates really down um so that that's what we're trying to work, work on you know what does expertise look like what's a good clinic look like who needs to be in it How do you you, um, relate to your families? And uh, all all those things can help with misdiagnosis. And again, there's money to be saved there, you know. If you're misdiagnosing people and whacking them on epilepsy treatment, you're wasting loads of money and you're not treating their problem and you're giving them all the stigma and baggage of epilepsy and they've got something else. Yeah,
0: I'd rather have, you know, any stigma, focus on psychiatric issues, if that's what it was, so that I could address them. (laughs) So, um, and this is a bit of a, uh, touchy question um but do you have any um patients or have you had any experience with children who have epilepsy um as the result of parents who have um been too closely related
1: so their genetic the parents are genetically um, too close related yeah Yeah, i um not not epilepsy on its own so i I, think i i think usually um those young people, children will have a, gen, you know, a metabolic problem, another genetic diagnosis of which seizures are a, are a part. There's a r- whole range of metabolic uh, problems in children where, where close relatives make it more likely that the child has has an expression of that uh, disease. So there's, there's, there's quite a few, but they're rare. Um, and most epilepsies, that's not a question. So even, you know, the genetic epilepsies usually, they're, they're expressing themselves and it's nothing to do with consanguinity. So it's a, so it's a rare situation. Um, and, you know, it, it depends where you're working, I think, you know, because obviously there's cultural influences on the likelihood of consanguinity. Yeah. Um, so some services have more metabolic problems than others, uh, more genetic problems than others. Um, you know, it's, I think each geographical area of the, of, uh, of the, of the country have their own flavor of epilepsy and related problems and it's all quite different and their own demographics um, you know so when you know when you're making an epilepsy service what's right for one area
0: right it's like
1: it's like you know it needs a completely different um, picture i think for different areas of the country so thinking about it do
0: you know what i confess because i love the idea Oh not idea that the topics of genetics and i thought at one point I know it's un- unlikely statistically, but, you know, but well, my parents are a little bit too close genetically. Who knows? <laughs> because it's, it's when you have refractory epilepsy, you go through all these thoughts, like, what could be the cause? Will I ever know the cause? And sometimes I think, and maybe you experience this with patients and families too, no it, like when you say to them, "Do you know what, dude? I'm sorry. I just at this present moment, I can't provide you with a reason for your epilepsy,
1: increasingly the genetics is opening up, so yes. you know you know you we wouldn't we'd only occasionally think about looking for a genetic diagnosis ten years ago, yeah. you know, whereas really now most children, certainly children under five, if it's not obvious what's causing the epilepsy, we need to be going hunting for a genetic cause. And um, you know, it's, it's we've only just started with that. I'm, I'm, it's exciting, but we, but um, it's going to be different for five years from now, ten years from now, and then we'll move to whole genome type. Model, you know, where you almost certainly you'll already have um, have access to the person's genome, and then you can interrogate that and go looking for diagnoses off off that resource. And so, you know, what that what's that world going to look like?
0: So um, exciting, isn't it? I know some people are scared of it, but I just think it's amazing. Like what, like you said, what are we going to find out in five years?
1: What's disappointing sometimes is how the genetics doesn't give you the answer. So sometimes it can yeah. explain things, but then you can find uh, people with the same genetic problem and they've not got epilepsy at all, or it's completely right. different. So, they, so they, this relationship between who you are and your genes is not—it's not, it's not straight course. In fact, it's—it's. It's, it's weirdly complicated. We're, we're much more than our genes. Yeah. My work has been really about the phenotype, you know, not so much the genetics, but how it is for the person, how it expresses itself in them. But the, the genotype and the the, and the linking that up with the phenotype is, is going change, to change things considerably, I think. Not just epilepsy, but all sorts of health problems.
0: And then hopefully <laughs> help with the psychiatric comorbidities uh, too, you know, so you can yeah, find well, those links yeah, and... Um,
1: I'm sure we'll find genetic predispositions to all sorts of mental health problems so
0: exciting
1: it's not going to suddenly solve everything I think you know it will it will give us even more insight but it will create a different type of complexity
0: (laughs) (laughs) and that's such an important point really isn't it because people um who aren't familiar with you know whole genome sequencing or whole exome sequencing presume that if you do that test we have all the answers in the world and you're going to cure me oh if only if only yeah, you know
1: yeah it just moves the why you know there's still there's still always a why and what now um but, but more information helps for sure but it but it but it it never completely satisfies the issue <laughs> and you can still never see the future you know you however much we know about you know you still can't look and that would be that would be the best intervention if we could have for epilepsy if you could well maybe maybe i don't know (laughs) time 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 some sort of time travel device i don't know whether we can invent that or
0: (laughs) yeah be like oh my goodness i show my age but i was just thinking back to the future reversed or bill and ted's but apparently they've made another bill and ted i haven't seen it have you heard of it There's new Bill and Ted's like Bogus Journey or something. Oh,
1: yeah. I've not seen that. I've not seen it. I've I've seen seen Back to the Future too many times.
0: Classic. (laughs) Don't judge us people. Classic. And if you haven't seen it, you've got to watch it, man. Even if it's just
1: for the cheese. Uh, A a DeLorean car in epilepsy (laughs) clinic. Go ahead, see how the (laughs) medicine's going to work. Go back, be able to see the seizure. That would be fantastic.
0: Oh, my God, (laughs) wouldn't it? And you would have, like... People in their late teens and probably parents as well jumping in that DeLorean as well, just, yeah, you know.
1: And the, the jetpacks, you know, that, that came, you know, the late, the later on, you know, things that fly, that, that, they're just missing in our teenage, they, they, electronic scooters are one thing, but, you know, jetpacks and time machines.
0: <laughs> something different, something different. <laughs> um, so if people wanna um, support you and in what you're doing and the work that, you know, and I'm talking about the work that you're doing to gets more support for both clinicians and patients and families, um, those who are affected by epilepsy, how can they do that? Or what? how can they find you?
1: Yeah, so my, the audit work is Epilepsy 12. So if you Google Epilepsy 12, which is all one word, you'll find the um, College of Paediatric website. And um, there's all the different streams within that programme are, are discussed on, on on that website. So we've got a youth advocacy programme. So teams of young people who, who do their own analysis and research programmes and do their own um, platform presentations and and are on the different boards and so drive drive the uh, programme. Um, if you're a pro- professional, you know, look at your own results. Um, what how is your local service doing? What can you do? What 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 where the changes needed if you're a commissioner how are the um, services in your patch um, performing who needs support what so you know we've tried to do the audit data to show the whole system you know what are clinics like what trusts like what are regions like how we're doing nationally um what's the workforce like um and see see the gaps in the system so so helping us gather the data and looking at our results and working out, you know, what, what can I do? How can I use this um, data? Because I think we've known there's problems for years, um, but there's been, a, I don't know, there's been a silence around the problem or people have felt the problems and lived with the problems. But when we've gone looking for the actual evidence to describe the problem, to make the case for change or the economic case for change, it hasn't been there. But, but it is now, you know, we, the, paper we published in July, just gone. We'd gathered um, the story for 6,000 children and young people in England and Wales who've presented with, with new seizures and what happened over their first year and what went well and what didn't go well and then we've broken it down um, geographically across the country. So you can see it, as much detail as you want how um, the quality of care is across the country so now so now we're at a point now where it's what we do about it so it's not trying to know what the problem is it's it's getting on and solving these problems and we still need more epilepsy nurses we need uh, mental health in clinics we need teenage clinics we need good pathways to um, neurologists as loads there's loads to do but we can we can see what the problem is uh, now so there's there's loads of ways to um, there's loads of ways to join in
0: how can um anybody listening, could they present this issue to their local MP um, yeah, yeah. to support and, and, you know, refer to your work and, and, you know, as a empirical evidence, like we have this issue, what are you gonna do about it?
1: Yeah, um, and because the voice of the, the person with, with epilepsy or the family is always listened to, always. Um, and um, you, so yeah, as a young person or as a parent, you can look at how your service is doing you can ask questions to your service what you're doing about this you can write to your chief executive you could go to your commissioning group you go to mp you know um we want to work with fam you know families we want to work with families and um but they they can help us by telling us what they need and what they want and um making their voice their voice heard and you know that's the idea giving them data can can mean that they've got informed they're, they're informed it's not just not just their experience. Their experience is really important, but it's experience and evidence together. um, And it's really, really powerful.
0: And also I think it's quite reassuring um, or comforting for... uh other clinicians uh, to know that somebody else is singing from the same hymn sheet as, as themselves and um, the same goes for um, carers and patients you know we're not the only ones who are getting quite frustrated with this we have people who like Colin Dankley, like speaking for us and then if we get other clinicians involved too then we can I just you know I just feel like there'll be this big cr- positive crowd working for change to better the lives of so many people And yeah, not only patients, but all their families, you know?
1: We talk a lot about clinical networks and and working together and collaboration, but we need um, to think that's not just a professional thing, you know, that's a network, including our families, you know, families are at the front, you know, embedded. It it is a network of um, society and reaching out into schools and social, you know, it doesn't just stop at health or at the doors of the the clinic. so yeah, so sort of re rethinking what networks are and connecting people and getting a common voice most people are working together and trying to solve the um, the same the same problems but um, things that get things get in the way that sh- that shouldn't but i i think you know there's there's lots of potential the the um, nhs plan that's come that's beginning to be talked about again now after covid has got some good stuff in there about Epilepsy care and mental health and transition. So, Great. so we need, we need to get behind, get behind that. Um, the ICSs, the commissioning groups that are beginning to crystallise, uh, are beginning to show interest in epilepsy and other long-term conditions. So, there's definitely um, channels and opportunities there, and people beginning to listen. Uh, but, but we. we yeah we need experience and evidence to be shouted shouted out for sure
0: but shouted out in a productive I think constructive way there are places for moaning but I do well we're working together on something like this we need to try and be like okay this is terrible but wouldn't this be cool and wouldn't that is so important
1: It is when you talk about quality it's really hard to not you, you can end up quite downtrodden and depressed because you're you know you're you're sort of trying to criticize yourself and the system but you you've got to you've got to see where improvements need you know there's got to be a facing up to where service needs to improve you've got you you've got to do it so but you can do that constructively i agree
0: Oh, thank you so much for what you do. Honestly, this has been a, such a cool, fun chat and really uplifting to hear about what you're doing. And so much of us can learn from you um, and your work. So I will put the links or the link to the website that you mentioned, um, Colin, um, below this recording and also to your Twitter. You've got a Twitter page. It's a it's a really cool like profile picture of like half his head. So <laughs> you won't be able to miss it. <laughs> Thank you so much to Colin for telling us about his work and sharing with us what a passion he has for improving the lives of children and their families, in fact, affected by the epilepsies. It is like really heartwarming, and I can say that from a personal perspective as a kid who grew up with epilepsy, as well as a supposed adult, it really warms my heart. Next week, we'll be chatting to Alexandra Fonsi, a genomic and molecular biotechnologist from L'Aquila in Italy. And she'll be telling us about her epilepsy research project in the field of whole genome sequencing. Follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. And we'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Do subscribe to our podcast and know that we are always trying to improve what we are doing here for the programme. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.